heads up, this podcast isn't appropriate for children. It's February 2021, the Utah State Capitol in Salt Lake City, and Senate Room 110 is packed. I'm going to call the uh, Senate Judiciary Law Enforcement Criminal Justice Standing Committee to order. Um, our first Everyone's in position. The lawmakers seated up on a dais, TV cameras rolling, waiting for this moment. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. My name is Paris Hilton. Yes, that Paris Hilton. These state senators are sitting under fluorescent lights in a gray-walled, windowless hearing room. And they're about to hear testimony from Paris Hilton, fashion model, celebrity, scion of the Hilton Hotel dynasty. When Paris was a teenager in the 1990s, her parents sent her to Utah for help. Instead, she tells legislators, she was traumatized. I was given clothes with a number on the tag. I was no longer Paris. I was only number 127. I was verbally, mentally, and physically abused on a daily basis. I was cut off from the outside world and stripped of all of my human rights. I was not allowed to be myself, hold my own opinions, or even speak. Paris is talking about Provo Canyon School, the program we told you about in the last episode, the one that sparked Utah's massive teen treatment industry. After years of staying silent about what she says happened to her there, now she was speaking out. I'm going to be honest. Talking about something so personal was and is still terrifying. But I cannot go to sleep at night knowing that there are children that are enduring the same abuse that I and so many others went through, and neither should you. But even more surprising was how the lawmakers reacted. This has been a problem in the state of Utah for a long, long time. One lawmaker even questioned whether the $400 million a year industry should even be allowed to exist in his state. Shouldn't we have the conversation of whether we ought to just forbid these programs? And they weren't just asking questions. They were apologizing, basically for not doing their jobs. You know, there, there's no words uh, sometimes. I'm so sorry. We failed to protect you. And I'm sorry about that. Because in a way, they weren't just apologizing to Paris. They were apologizing to the whole country. This is Sent Away, an investigative podcast from KUER, the Salt Lake Tribune, and APM Reports. I'm Jessica Miller. This is our final episode, so if you haven't listened to the first six, you should start there. This is episode seven, We Failed You, the story of a movement for change. What happens when the people who say they were harmed in Utah's teen treatment programs find their voice? I left these programs so much worse off than when I went in. Jen Robison was 14 when her parents sent her to Provo Canyon School. She bounced in and out of that treatment program, then went to another one. By the time she left for good, she felt worse than ever, and she wasn't sure what to do about it. 
I hadn't been able to deal with the trauma. I, I hadn't really, I don't think I even really was able to think about whether it was or wasn't traumatic or whether it was or wasn't abuse, you know, all the isolation and the injections. I don't think that I was able to put it in those terms or even really um, process it, but it did come out in um, a worse depression when I was in my late teens. And um, when I was 19, this was, I don't know when YouTube started, but it was when I was kind of aware of YouTube. I decided to make a testimonial. I was um, admitted to Provo Canyon School in Provo, Utah from um, 2003, 2005. Um, I was out for a number of months and I was readmitted in 2006, 2007. Jen recorded the video in her dad's apartment on a bad webcam. She looks young. She's wearing heavy eyeliner and she has long, thick bangs that brush against her lashes. The video is black and white. And in it, Jen talks about having a traumatic experience in Utah. It didn't get that much attention at first. She heard from a lot of parents who were thinking about sending their child to Provo Canyon School. But that was kind of the end of it. And then in 2018, someone else who also went to Provo Canyon School found that old YouTube video and reached out. They started talking and researching. You fall down this rabbit hole where you set out wanting to understand one facility, and then you suddenly discover and start to understand that it is so much more than one facility. And I was just fascinated. Um, I mean, I was heartbroken, but I was fascinated by how something this huge and this damaging and so pervasive could have been going on almost completely unchecked. And that sparked something in me that I wanted to find a way to make it known. This is how it was for a long time. People who went to these programs found each other on message boards and social media. They shared experiences and supported each other. But many of them felt that no one in the wider world would listen to them. But in 2020, Paris Hilton released a documentary. It was called This is Paris. This is Paris. Paris. This is Paris f***ing Hilton! It was the first time she'd spoken publicly about her experience in Utah. I was at Provo for 11 months. And the only thing that saved my sanity was thinking about what I wanted to do and who I wanted to become when I got out of there. The film inspired those little chat groups to form a full-blown movement. Jesse and I was sent to a therapeutic boarding school at the age of 16. At the age of 14. Ages 10 to 13. 15 years old. 
I witnessed multiple counts of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. We were force marched for three weeks after being strip searched in a basement by strangers. I was brainwashed and I was tortured. And I am breaking code silence. And I am breaking code silence. And I am breaking code silence. The movement calls itself Breaking Code Silence. The name comes from a code of silence many residents said they were forced to follow when they were in treatment centers. It was a form of punishment where they weren't allowed to talk to anyone else in the program. And the movement wasn't just happening online. Just a month after her documentary premiered, Paris Hilton came back to Utah, along with more than 100 other people who'd spent time in treatment centers. Hello, my community of survivors. They were adults now, and they'd come from all around the country to show the state of Utah that they weren't going away. And Jen Robison is there leading them. We are showing by our sheer numbers now that the abuse is real. The industry is what is broken, and it stops with us. It's a surreal moment for Jen. She's a mom from Oregon. But here she is, standing next to a celebrity, surrounded by a crowd marching silently toward Provo Canyon School, the place where she says she suffered so much. I have never done this before. I've been a waitress. I've worked in preschools. I've worked in caregiving. I have never... I have never done any PR planning, public movement planning, none of that. We launched a movement on one of the most difficult to understand and easily stigmatized issues. During a pandemic, in a time of social distancing, in the shadow of a a major tabloid celebrity, It was not a a small task. They cried together and hugged each other. And for the first time, for some, they finally felt like they weren't alone. Here, in Provo, outside the treatment center that gave rise to an industry, these former residents were standing together, now breaking their silence. They were demanding change and accountability. And someone heard them. You found us. Hey. Okay, come in. Mike McKell is a Utah state senator. He's a conservative Republican, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, brother-in-law of the governor. If you're not offended by hunting, that is a very cool wolf. The walls in his home office are decorated with hides. Black bear. Did you, are these all your? Yes. In Utah or where do you go? No, that's Alaska. All the predators are Alaska. Those are lion, mountain lion skulls, a couple of those. Mikkel isn't the kind of politician who normally favors more regulation. But he'd been reading my articles about the teen treatment industry. And then the rally happened. It was definitely a tipping point. It was time to take some action. At first, he wasn't looking for radical changes. But then former residents, staff, and parents started calling him, emailing him. It just, it bothered me. And it, 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 I locked in harder. 
I think I just got more angry. I mean, it was very obvious that we had a problem that needed to be resolved. So last year, he introduced a bill with much stricter regulations. It placed new limits on staff physically restraining kids. It gave kids the right to talk to their parents without a staff member listening. And it required state inspectors to visit treatment programs four times a year. You want to be a voice for for the kids in in these programs. I can't look at the stuff that you've reported on, the emails I get, and ignore it at this point. I mean, I'm incapable of doing that at this point. When the bill was finally up for debate, it faced almost no resistance at Utah's Capitol. It sailed through committee after committee. And in the final days of the legislative session, it had only one more hurdle to clear. A vote in the Utah House. David Fox has that part of the story in a moment. Hey, it's David. It's just over a year ago, March of 2021. Madam Reading Clerk. And Senator McKell is listening to the live feed of the floor debate on his signature legislation. First substitute Senate Bill 127, Human Services Program Amendments by Senator McKell. If it passes, it'll be the first major overhaul of the state's teen treatment regulations in 15 years. And he's feeling confident. I thought it was going to go through without any issues. But it wasn't so simple. And at the last possible moment... Representative Ship. A lawmaker named Rex Ship proposed one little change. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, motion to amend. He wanted to soften up a part of the bill that explicitly banned staff from inflicting pain on residents. And then we add the words, unless inducing pain is necessary to protect an individual's health or safety. Thank you, Representative. Ship wanted to allow staff to inflict pain on kids if they thought it would de-escalate a dangerous situation. And it turns out, he came up with the idea for the amendment after hearing concerns from Havenwood Academy. It's in his legislative district. Havenwood's executive director, Ken Huey, told us last year that he was worried about limits on restraints. We don't want to be regulated out of business where we have to let kids get themselves into dangerous situations and we can't stop them. You need the availability of something like a bent wrist or something to stop them from causing much, much, much worse harm. A bent wrist, they'll recover from that in five minutes. We don't want to use them, but geez, if not that, okay, fine. I'm actually cool with never using a bent wrist control. I think I hate them. I don't like them at all. If I have some other way to keep that kid safe, I'm in. Just tell me what it is. The irony was not lost on me. Senator McKell knew that Ship had been talking to Havenwood. And McKell also knew about the company's history. I mean, the irony of Havenwood trying to amend the bill after they had zip-tied 
a girl and put her in a water trough. And I mean, that's exactly what's wrong with the industry. It's not based on any evidence. It's not based on any psychology. You have this made up therapy. And that was the group that was trying to push painful restraint back into the bill. Mikkel didn't see that as a minor change at all. He saw it as an attempt to gut a key protection for children. When I saw the amendment, I probably grumbled a few expletives in my mind and then ran over to the house. But Mikkel can't just burst onto the floor and yell out, stop. He's a state senator, and this is all happening over in the House. So he's outside the chamber, waving his hands, trying to make sure the representatives vote it down. So I kind of stayed in the hallway with my, you know, pointing down like anybody that would look over at me. I'm like, guys, you know, kill this. And I was texting all my friends in the house, you know, let's kill this, guys. This is a bad amendment. Legislators are getting the message and they start questioning Ship's amendment. Could you explain exactly what you mean by inducing pain? Like what... What type of way are you picturing that this pain is being induced? Uh, Typically, what they use is just the bent wrist. You know, I don't know if you've ever had somebody bend your wrist. It, It can create some pretty good pain to get the compliance. But he wasn't persuading many other lawmakers. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? No. Rule the motion fails. So the amendment was dead. Staff and treatment centers wouldn't be allowed to inflict pain on kids. And after that, Mikkel's bill passed easily. That law has been in effect for about a year now. Havenwood Academy says it's in full compliance with the new law and only had to make minor changes to its procedures. Amanda Slater is a high-ranking official in the Utah Department of Health and Human Services. And she says the new law is making a difference. I think that it's giving us a better picture of what's happening in these programs and then the availability to act sooner, not wait until something bad happens. Before the new law, state inspectors typically only visited treatment programs once a year. Slater says those visits usually were scheduled ahead of time. If we're only going in there once a year and it's announced, you know, most people would clean up their house before you show up. So you don't always find the problems. Now inspectors stop by four times a year. And the state has more of them so that they can show up unannounced. And listening to Slater... It's also clear the government has gone through a philosophical shift about its role in overseeing the treatment programs. I have realized that we need to hold these programs accountable. You can see it in the numbers. Utah cited treatment programs for rule violations more than 200 times last year. That's twice as often as the year before. And more transparency is on the way, too. The state says it will start posting all those violations on the Internet this summer. That'll be a big change because they made us pay them thousands of dollars to get those records. And at this point, the only place they're available online is in a database that we created last year. 
I wish I could say nothing bad's ever gonna happen again, but that's not the world we live in, unfortunately. Um, I, I hope that nothing happens, but I, I do think that we would um, be able to catch it sooner just because of being in there and having people know that if they see something, to make sure they report it to us. And something did happen, just a few months ago. In January, a girl died at a treatment program about 50 miles south of Salt Lake City. The state found the program, quote, failed to provide necessary medical care in an incident that resulted in a client's death, end quote. The program disputes that, and it filed an appeal. The place is called Maple Lake Academy, and it's located six miles from Senator McKell's house. I'm going to lose my mind if the facts are as bad as they sound. Mikkel says he's waiting for the investigation and the appeal process to play out. But the incident makes him think that his legislation didn't go far enough. I think we need to enhance the tools. I, I, straight up, I, I think our tools are not strong enough. There are facilities that simply should be shut down. I think there are violations that are too egregious to remedy. Jen Robison agrees. She's the activist who led that rally. It's so easy for a facility to rebrand or put out some wackadoo PR statement that makes it sound like something's all better when it isn't until real consequences are dealt to programs, removals of licenses, removals of children, until these programs are actually shut down or limited in a meaningful way, nothing's going to change in that system. The story we've told you over the last seven episodes spans two decades. It started with the death of a girl in 2002. And it's ending with the death of a girl in 2022. In both cases, the state said the treatment programs could have done more to keep the girls safe. Utah remains the epicenter of America's teen treatment industry. Parents, judges, and foster care agencies from around the country all rely on Utah's government to decide who can be trusted with our most vulnerable people. So what has changed? A movement rose up. Laws were strengthened. There are more inspectors and inspections, more rules and more violations. We now have a way clearer picture of what happens in those treatment programs day to day. But is it enough? We have only one year of data right now, so it's a little early to say, but we're going to keep collecting that data. And when we have answers, we'll be back. 
But before we go, we have one more thing we wondered about, and we figure you might be wondering too. Our investigation started with the story of Integrity House. How the state gave it and the family that started it chance after chance. So what did the Taylor family do after they lost their business eight years ago? Curtis Gilbert has the last chapter of our story. Daniel Taylor answered a lot of questions from us. We talked for almost three hours, but there were some things he was coy about. What have I been doing? Yeah, yeah, what have you been doing, like, for a living? No, just, you know, just doing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not hard to find out what I'm doing (laughs) for a living. Mm -hmm. And true enough, Daniel's lawyer, Scott Burns, filled us in. So if you had his knowledge, background, and expertise, and I ran a company or had a business that was a residential treatment facility in Salt Lake County, you might hire me to say, Scott, I've got 20 open beds. And I'd call my uh, contact in Connecticut, California, Montana. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've got three girls that are court-ordered. The state of California will pay for that. Five grand a month, or some of them are ten grand a month. I wouldn't know who to call or what to do. But Daniel does, and I think he's been doing a lot of that. So Daniel Taylor is still working in the troubled teen industry, but he's not running a program himself anymore. At least not yet. We went through all the business filings associated with him at the Utah Department of Commerce, and there was one from just two years ago. He and his cousin formed a corporation called Flaming Gorge Juvenile Correctional Facility. We asked Daniel about that, and he said some people from a remote part of Northeast Utah approached him about opening a treatment program there. The former jail up in Daggett County had been sitting vacant for a couple years following its own abuse scandal. I did talk to them, geez, a couple times, maybe. So that just was a couple phone calls and that was about it. I think they made a corporation and was hoping to get something going and it never happened. I I wasn't going to do anything with it. I couldn't see it happening up there. And that wasn't the Taylor family's only recent involvement in an attempt to open a treatment center. When we dropped in on Daniel's brother, Farron, a couple months ago, he made it sound like his family wanted nothing to do with the industry. We haven't been in it in such a long time. I'm not. I'm a builder. I build houses for a living. I did that even while I was running that company. But when we looked Farron up in state business filings, we found that for almost five years, he's been trying to start a drug rehab program called New Life Recovery. You said you're out of it, but I thought you were trying to open like an adult drug treatment oh, thing in do, town you, here. You do your homework. Right, right. Uh, I have a friend who wants to do it. He's a cop. Most of my friends are cops and attorneys, by the way. And he asked me if I'd help him, and so I did. I don't do it. And personally, I'm not really that interested in doing it again. 
You guys do your investigation, don't you? Well, we got, we're reporters, so we go searching for facts, basically. Yeah. Well, Talking to people. I know. think you guys are fishing down a hole that was gone a long time ago. And we're not back in the business. But as recently as last year, Farron and his business partners had been trying to open up that adult treatment center in a 48-room motel. It's on the main street of the small town where he lives. And Farron wasn't the only Taylor brother listed on the business filings for New Life Recovery. Daniel's name was there, too. I haven't done anything with it. You haven't been involved in it at all? Mm, they've tried to get me to. Like, you were originally, like, in 2018, you were on the I know. paperwork for it. <laughs> so. I know. I know. Uh-huh. But nothing's ever happened with it. Yeah. And I haven't lifted a finger to do anything with it either. Really? No. I mean, it's too far away for me anyway. It hasn't been an interest for me at this time. Do you miss the industry at all? Um, I don't know. If it happened again to go into the business, it'd take a lot of, a lot of coaching, put it that way. Except the phone number to contact New Life Recovery, it belongs to Daniel Taylor. State records show New Life Recovery struggled with the licensing process. A licensor wrote that its program manual had no organization, was long, wordy, and incoherent, and it appeared to be cut and pasted from several sources. Ironically, one of those sources was Havenwood Academy. In spite of that, Utah gave the program a license. In fact, the state gave it two. But New Life Recovery never actually started treating patients. Although somehow, it has testimonials from satisfied customers on its website. In October of last year, Daniel's brother Farron called the state and canceled the license. He hadn't been able to get patients to treat. He'd parted ways with the motel owners. And he reported that those owners might be trying to open their own drug treatment program. It seems like he might have been onto something. After we left his house, we swung by the old motel. Under signs that advertised the lowest rates always and AARP discount was one that said MATR, Addiction Recovery, coming soon. So the Taylors' attempts to open new treatment programs have been stymied, but not by the state. The state of Utah has been perfectly willing to give them another chance.
Help more people find Sent Away. Go to your favorite podcast app and write us a review. And if you want to learn more about Utah's oversight of the teen treatment industry, check out our website. It's sentaway.org. This kind of investigative journalism takes a lot of time and money. Our news organizations are all nonprofits. We depend on support from people like you to do this important work. There are links in the show notes where you can donate to APM Reports, KUER, and the Salt Lake Tribune. Your support makes our work possible. Sent Away was reported by David Fox, Jessica Miller, and me, Curtis Gilbert. Data reporting by Will Craft. Kate Cahan is our editor. She had help from Elaine Clark and Matt Canham. Fact-checking by Betsy Towner-Levine. Our web editor is Andy Cruz. Michael L. Sesser is the managing producer. Scoring and production by Nancy Rosenbaum, with sound mixing from Alex Simpson. Engineering by David Childs. Original music by Roddy Nickpour. We also had help from our great intern, Hannah Akramadine. And a special thanks this week to everyone who helped us out and gave us feedback over the last year, including Caroline Ballard, Madeline Barron, Ben Calhoun, Samara Freemark, Sean Means, Rob Wildeborn, Catherine Winter, and Mariah Wolfel. And we couldn't have done this without Chris Worthington, Maria O'Mara, Lauren Gustus, Christy Miners, Rachel Crosby, Ellie Lyons, Joel Meyer, Trisha Bobita, Andrew Becker, and all the folks at the Marketplace New York Bureau. Support for Sent Away was provided by Arnold Ventures, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the Hollyhock Foundation.